0: Greetings all. Welcome back to the Coptimizer Podcast. Another awesome guest this week. We've got Danny Maguire, PhD. So maybe that's Dr. Danny McGuire. I like it that way. Dr. Danny <laughs> McGuire sounds you, better.
1: Well, I I you know you to be to be fair about that, I I always kind of thought about um you know, when you, yeah, when, you when someone time calls time. me doctor, it's uncomfortable because if you fall out, I can't help you. Right. Like I'm not that kind of doctor. Uh-huh. I'm an academic. So I could, maybe I could bore you before you meet the Lord, you know, for, <laughs> for a few minutes. But, you know, other than that, it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor, but yes, I do have a doctorate of education. So yes, I have an EdD.
0: So, so- Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your your background and your law enforcement background and and where you've landed as Dr. Danny McGuire.
1: Sure. I, well, you know, I started in law enforcement, I figured out pretty early on, I, I wanted to be like my dad. You know, I looked up to my dad. Other kids looked up to sports figures and music artists and stuff. I always kind of looked up to dad, you know, and um. Uh, dad was in service, so that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, at the age of 18, I became an explorer uh, in Palos Heights, Illinois. It's a small su- suburb southwest Chicago. Um, became a cadet explorer, then became one of the first community service officers. And This was like 1991, so it was a newer thing, the community service officer um, dynamic. Uh, and then in 92, at 21 years old, I got my f- first full-time sworn Police job, And that was with the Cook County Sheriff's Police Department um, and a federally funded narcotics task force called the South Suburban Drug Initiative. And that was a federal grant that the Cook County Sheriff was involved in um, to combat narcotics out in the south suburbs of Harvey Robbins, Dixmoor, Phoenix, Ford Heights, Markham, Chicago Heights, uh, south suburbs of Cook County. Um, after going through the police academy, and training, I went to the MEG unit where I was completely covert. Covert long-term narcotics investigations. What we were charged with. So I did that till about 1996. I was 25, and I went to Chicago Police. It was my dream, um, just like Dad. Got there, um, did patrol work, you know, midnights. Then I went to Special Ops, uh, part of Special Ops. I got an HBT team. Now they call it SWAT, but back then it was HBT. You know, did all the, the steps in 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 that um, with containment, and then sniper and. The rest of the way, um, 2007 was promoted to sergeant, uh, went back to patrol. Uh, before that I had to do a 90 day detail during that time, police superintendent, Phil Klein had this initiative where sergeants, um, were sent to detective school and then the detective division for 90 day detail before being going to, um, before going to sergeant school and then being promoted to sergeants. So I went to this, uh, 90 day detective, uh, division, detail which i I did learn a lot um i was in the Southside area too uh, in violent crimes it was uh a learning experience uh very much detective jobs very different than patrol um very skilled people Mm -hmm. have those jobs as detectives i had a lot of respect for them um was promoted to sergeant worked in patrol um and then you know when you come from a place like special operations and this is kind of a a funny side note, you come from special operations or HBT or the SWAT team, whatever you want to call it. You're kind of spoiled, you know, you're kind of spoiled. You're, you're, you know, your job is, uh, you know, you're waiting to get called or you have to work out while you're working. You get to eat wherever you want and you go back to patrol <laughs> at midnights. That's not happening anymore, you know. <laughs> <laughs> People are getting yeah. denied a lot People of these getting...
0: conversations over the years, <laughs>
1: right? You know, so they, you know, my dad would say, you know, uh, in his words, you know, the more skilled someone is or just more specialized, the more they complain, you know. And I, 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 I could, I could see that. So I, I went to patrol and I, I was amazed at how hard I, I forgot, you know, like I forgot that whole dynamic and watching. Uh, those young people, I want to call them kids, but, you know, they're kids. I'm 52 years old now. And back then I was 36, you know, um, they're kids and um, they work so hard, you know, and the thing I hated to hear would be like, you know, 822, there's a burglar alarm on your beat. And they're like, oh, I was just going to ask for lunch, you know, and they'd be like, well, you can't go to lunch until your burglar alarm's answered. And I'm like, you know, no way. Just give it to me. Right. I'll take it. So that was a new dynamic, you know, just answering calls I'd answer 30 or 40 calls a night on my own, you know, as a sergeant, which in a place like Chicago it, at that time, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it was kind of like a unique dynamic. And it made the people within the watch respect you like, hey, th- this is our, our frontline leader. You have know, this whole ideology about frontline leadership being the most important dynamic in law enforcement. You know, the sergeant, you have the most contact with the charge. I mean, you are chief. Pat. So it's, I might not ever see you, you know. Uh,
0: absolutely
1: right. But I'm going to see my sergeant. So that person has to be the most trained, with the best leadership skills. Just my opinion. Um, so I did that for a little while, and I, then I went back, and I was by that time I was called the SWAT team, and I went in a support capacity as uh, the team leader or commanding officer to weapons, of mass destruction, safety, and support team. Um, And with that came about four other duties, (laughs) including later the chief hostage negotiator. Um, While I was on a department, I went and earned my education. I got a bachelor's degree in law enforcement management from Calumet College of St. Joseph, where I work now. run the same program that I went through. Um, Then I went and got a master's in counseling psychology from the Adler School of Professional Psychology. Uh, I was going to go to law school. And a commander in the police department who was a very dear friend, a man named Bill Powers, he passed on many years ago. He was a psychologist and he taught at Adler. And I, I was considering law school, saw him at headquarters. He's like, why would you want to do that? Just seems like, you know, the progression. I'm a police officer, law school, right? He's like, why don't you become a therapist? I think you'd be great at it. You know, I know you, I know your personality. I think you'd be an excellent therapist. And I said, okay, well, I I don't know anything about it. He's like, go this summer to Adler, take two classes. If you like it, become a therapist. I loved it. So that's, I got my master's. I got my doctorate from Olivet Nazarene University in Bourbonnais. It was a doctorate in ethical, uh, doctor of education, emphasis, ethical leadership. Um, And then when I left the job, I went and got two more masters. I got one from Clemson University in public administration, and then uh, another one from the University of Georgia in foods and nutrition.
0: So. Wow, that's that's quite the resume. <laughs> now I yeah. teach. So all right. So well, that's awesome. That's great that you um, you have the practical experience and the academic background now to to be able to educate the next generation. So I want to go all the way back to the beginning. So starting as a community service officer at 18 years of age, I've had this conversation a few times. What one of the biggest concerns I think that we have nationwide in policing right now is being able to attract young talent, being able to attract the people with the right character, integrity, skill sets to come into the profession. Your father was a police officer. You looked up to him and that's something that you wanted to do. I've had the opportunity to teach new chiefs and to be exposed to a lot of different chiefs. And I think one of the concerns that I see when I go around, when I ask, and, and I'm guilty of this myself, when I ask other chiefs, "Hey, do you, would you advocate for your own child or loved one or someone close to you to enter into the profession of law enforcement right now?" And you know, almost unilaterally, the answer is no. And, mm-hmm. and then, which then the follow up question is, is um, "Are you?" Engaging with them and telling them not to do this profession, or how's that go? And they're like, "Yeah, I tell them to do anything but policing." And uh, you know, it's that—that's not necessarily a good sign for a healthy future in policing. And this is the message that I really hope that for maybe those listening to talk to those around them, the the, the people that they do have some influence over, and and just you know, start a conversation about what do you think policing in America is going to look like in 10 years uh, if we don't have enough people going into the profession? What do you, what, it, and yeah, that, that's a concern. So, I mean, it, I think it's, I've, it's so admirable when, when I see others and my former deputy chief, um, he's, his son is in policing and he, man, he's yeah, they're, they're they're just doing great, but you don't see that very much anymore. So I don't, I don't yeah. know for, you know For maybe someone like you that came up, you know, the son of a, of a police officer, you know, what, what would your message be to to listeners about having, you know, having that conversation and getting people when they're young, exposed to policing?
1: Yeah. So that's a good question because most of the time I'm T i am as I said earlier, I teach at Calumet college, right. Applicable, applicable scenario I'm giving you here. So I, you know, I'll have, 20, 30 police officers in a master's class or an undergrad class, and we'll have this very same conversation. And they're like, Hey, I cop, um, or we'll, you know, I'll direct to your child. No. Why? Well, you know, I love, I love my, my son, but he doesn't have the temperament, right? Like he doesn't have the temperament for this job. He's very, um he's a very kind man you know he's very i mean he's 21 years old right that's by this time i was already out on the street when i was his age right yeah which is so that was very
0: unusual back then
1: right 21 years old gun sworn right hand good to go and working narcotics undercover trying to buy drugs (laughs) you know it was uh, a different dynamic however the things that are different nowadays is social media it's a game changer Right. It it's it's a in my opinion, um, it can help, but it also hinders, you know, because there's a lot of negativity. You have a snippet of a video that, la- you know, a scenario lasts 25 minutes or 30 minutes in interaction with somebody. And you're getting the the one minute that, you know, it went south. Right. It, you know, sugar turned to poop. Here it is. Okay. Right. And you're getting that one minute. So it's kind of leaving that impression on people like I don't want people to hate me right? So like my son doesn't, he just doesn't have that temperament. Even if there was no social media, if I put him back in my time, he, he has the hem- temperament to help, but in a, it depends where he'd work, right? In a place like Chicago, he doesn't have the temperament. You know, someone getting in your face, yelling at you. They did it in 1992. They did it in 1996. They did the same stuff. We just right. didn't have people recording like they are now, right? They, they, be saying evil, rotten things. And you just kind of walked it off, you know, all right, whatever. I don't, I don't even know this person. So for me, I wouldn't recommend it to him, but when I have these conversations, a lot of it has to do with the environment today that kids are exposed to, Um, how their temperaments, just like I said with my son, like their temperament, they just, most police officers are concerned about their children's temperament. The ones I've talked to, like they just don't have, they couldn't deal with what we dealt with. Now, I'm not yes. sure that's true. That's a perception, right? I'm right. not sure that it's true, right? With training um, and some good mentoring, I think that they would be able over, over, you know, overcome that challenge of whatever they're deficient in, in the way of their personality or their temperament. So, if my son Luke said to me, Hey dad, I think I'm going to become a cop. You know, I'm going to school for special ed, but I'm kind of sick of this stuff. So I think I want to go, um, and be a cop at first. I'd be like, understand what you're getting into, right. You're going to not have holidays off. You know, you, you know, you just can't call off of work. Like when you don't <laughs> feel like going in, right. Like, you know what? I I'm not I don't feel like coming in, you know, your PTO is planned out. You're going to get a furlough and you're going to have to pick that furlough. So this way we, everyone else could pick, you know, and sometimes, uh, promotional processes and things like that are not fair. Right. That, w- that's one of the big argument I get from students, right. In the way of promotions in a place like Chicago, um, you know, you sit down, you take a test, you get a score and now you're going to be this tremendous leader. It's not necessarily how it works. Right. <laughs> so not, uh, hard,
0: not hardly. All
1: right. So you, that is one of the big arguments that I get. Well, not argument discussions we have. Right. And it it turns into poor leadership. I don't have anybody to mentor me. That's worth anything anymore. And they want to get away from this environment of, you know, not, not having any kind of definitive leadership. If that makes sense. I think that's a big deal on why they would not recommend
0: it for their child. It makes, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, quite frankly, our are being sponsored for the show Performance Protocol. I mean, they're a, it's an executive coaching company where we're taking law enforcement leaders and those with specialties in law enforcement, training them as coaches. So agencies can uh, get engaged and offer their, particularly their young, their young officers and their young leaders, give them an opportunity to uh, be coached by some of it that's been there and done that in their shoes. And you know, I, I think. We go through cycles in policing where sometimes I think we do these things well, and then you get a new chief or you get new leadership that comes in and, and they change directions. And, you know, that it's it's kind of hard to really be consistent nationwide in terms of leadership development, or I should say, maybe it's not hard. Maybe that's not the right way to put it. I think maybe the better way to put it is we've just never truly appreciated how important that process is as a as a profession overall. And you know, being good enough isn't good enough. Um and that's kind of where if that if that makes sense in that we sometimes on the opposite in some cases you get people that are good test takers uh that wind up that wind up getting promoted but are not necessarily as proficient um tactically or technically sound as others. Um, and so they have leadership challenges, you know, you know, trying to you know, garner respect and, and those from them they're working with. And then on the, on the flip side, sometimes you have some of the best technical and tactical expertise, people that get promoted, um, but no leadership skills, no, no person, you know, they don't have the right personality for it, or they're not trained or taught the right way or mentored. So, yeah, I mean, it's, a it's, but when you got a million police officers in America, close to a million and not, you know, Chicago PD is, is, you know, top five, you know, size agencies in the country. It's like basically a small army that you're, that you're trying to manage. So. Well, there's agency.
1: challenges. There, yes. Like you said, there's challenges. So here, let me give you a couple scenarios. So I, when I first took over the program at Cal college, I was teaching a master's class and there was this younger guy in there. Right. I, I won't embarrass him by saying his name. Right. But he, he, he I mean, he, the minute I was taking role in class, like you could tell this guy had an attitude. So I have the personality where I'm going to call you out, right? I'm going to, I'm going to say, Hey, what's your problem? You know? So I, I look at this young person and I go, Hey, what's your problem? You know, what's wrong with you? And everyone's like, Oh, he's miserable. And I go, how old are you? He goes, I'm 26. I go, how long you've been on the job? He goes, I've been on for three years. I'm like, you're too young to be this salty, right? Like that. This is should be like the best time of your life, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Heck yeah, and
1: right. I mean, you remember that time. Like, if you, I remember people telling me when I got on the job, like, this job sucks, I don't know why you're doing this. They tell my dad, Dan, why are you letting young Dan go, go on the job? And I, I'm looking at him, going, Are you crazy? Like, are you there's something wrong with you? They're paying like, me to go do this, right? This is, right this is awesome. This is the best day of my life. Are you <laughs> kidding me right now? So, uh But as time goes on, you know, those things change, right? When you're exposed to different things. So I look at this young guy and I'm like, let's, let's have a conversation after class because, you know, I'm a coach, right? I I like coaching people. I like training people. I like mentoring people. I I like doing those things. I just have this inherent love for people, especially my brothers and sisters. There's nothing I wouldn't, most people who know me, my current and former students, people who know me well, know that there's, there's not much I wouldn't do for a police officer. You know, even when they're in the depths of like, you know, in some sort of scandal or whatever, I'm calling you. People might think you're nuclear. I'm not. I'm the person that's going to call you. I'm the person that tells you if you need something, I'll be there. I'm the one that's going to be there. Right? So I'm like, let's have a cup of coffee after class. So I take him for a cup of coffee. I'm like, what's going on with you, dude? And he goes, he goes. I'm going to sum it up for you, doc, real quick. If I go to work tonight in the district I work in, which is on the south side, and it's probably one of the worst districts to ever work in, because I don't know anybody on this job. Right. So I'm stuck. I can go to work tonight on midnights, maybe get in a foot chase, you know, with somebody with a gun. This person turns around, squares up with me. I shoot him and, you know, God forbid I get in a shooting. Could I still lose my job, get fired, even get criminally prosecuted for doing exactly what I'm supposed to do, what I was trained to do, what's in the rule book and everything, because this person might be related to somebody and now it's a news thing. I said, well, I mean, that's a stretch, but yeah, I guess you could. He goes, then why the F would I want to stay here? He goes, I'm going to use this opportunity to get my education. Then I'm going to go to the federal agencies. And I said, okay. And he did. He did. I, I just spoke to him, I don't know, about three months ago. He's doing very well. He's in a federal agency now and he's very happy. He's somewhere in West, Western America, you know, like the West coast. So he's very happy with what he's doing and he's glad he did that, but You know, he echoes many of the comments that you do get or after class, I'll say, hey, I'll stick around for 15 minutes. Let's have a conversation. And, you know, I I have people going, I want to leave this job. I'm going to move to Montana by like a thousand acres. And I never want to talk to a human being again. I'm going to raise alpacas. (laughs) Like, okay, (laughs) what's what's an alpaca eat? I have no idea. Well, how are you going to raise alpacas if you don't know that? Let's prepare, right? Let's prepare you to take this step. It's not going to be tomorrow. You just can't, right? you have people leaving just locally. You know, if you pay attention to social media and things like that, and I understand, you know, Oh, I saw it on Facebook. Oh, so it's gotta be real. Right. I know it's not real, but if you look at the numbers, people are leaving in droves, you know, and and people are leaving without even having being pensionable. Like yeah. I'm just leaving. Uh, it's not for me. And, um, your earlier point of someone not recommending for their child, I, I think that it's because we protect our family from the things that we see and the things that we do. And we don't want them going through the same ridiculousness that we have or that we see, if that makes sense. So, I mean, it's ultimate protection,
0: right? Right. Yeah, it's a great point. And, uh, you know, that that's that and that's also a great problem because those are those are the people that we need oftentimes to to step into those positions and, and do the job um yeah it'll be interesting to see how it goes i i don't you know but i also i also i don't like the, the, to be all doom and gloom and i don't want to no no right no like right, all right. the wheels are coming off because right. the opportunity here the opportunity is that America is starting to see what what life would be like, especially in the major metropolitan areas where we in a world where we don't support the police, uh, where we don't have. Community accountability. And uh, I know that was something that we were going to we, that we were going to get to later, but we might as well just jump to it now. Right. Because mm-hmm. one of one of your. Uh, you know, you worked as a hostage negotiator, you train in de-escalation. And when we, when we chatted a few weeks ago, getting ready for this podcast, that was kind of one of the things that we touched on is, and I've had this conversation with several people, de-escalation is this, you know, it's the buzzword around the country and just people why don't the police just de-escalate? Why don't they just de-escalate? And uh, (laughs) I'm laughing because
1: it's been done since inception of police work. I know.
0: And it's, it's like, it's not anything new. I mean, that's, that's the first thing that you're taught. Yeah, as as a young police officer is all right, how do you read the situation? How, you know, separate people, de-escalate, you know, you know, calm people down, get you know, get them in a position where you can capture information, understand what's going on, make decisions that's that's gonna solve a problem. And um you can't you can never do that when people are amped up and you know, particularly if you're fighting, right? So I mean, it's uh, never
1: gonna happen, right.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you might have to fight and then deescalate. Right. And now I got you in handcuffs. Now you sit here for 15, 20, 30 minutes or we go down to the station and you sit there for a while. And and then we have the conversation one way or another. It's got to happen. But, you know, deescalation can never be a one way conversation.
1: No. Right. It's a two way street. I mean, and when we did talk about it, it and just speaking about it now and laughing about it, it's like it's the big buzzword de-escalation, de-escalation. And then when you're in the academic world and these academics are talking about it and you look at them and you go, you do realize since the day of organized police work in America happened, whatever that day it was, 18 something, right? Police officers have been de-escalating and they'll say, give me an example. And I'll say, okay, you get called a domestic, husband and wife fighting, partners fighting, whatever two people fighting with each other that live together and allegedly love each other. Right. <laughs> they're fighting with each other. You, you go in and you, you have backup or however it works. And one person takes the, the one party and puts them in the corner here, the other party in that corner there. And each one of you are talking and they're calming down. That's the escalation. The, so when they come up with all these, this de-escalation tactics and they start talking about, it's just a buzzword. You know, it's like in any industry, they have their buzzwords. You can sound like you know what you're talking about if you know these 10 buzzwords, right? (laughs) The escalation happens to be one in ours. And um, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You find another profession out there. I, I challenge anybody to find another profession that do what we have done, guys like us that are no longer doing it. Or the people that are doing it now for the money they get the scrutiny they face and the danger they face every day you're not going to find it anywhere it's a very unique position so when people talk about de-escalation and they have all these great ideas it's like it reminds me of a lieutenant i had on a job uh, on the swat team his name was lieutenant bossy fred bossy and he people would say like doing this when columbine happened Right. I mean, I was on the HBT team and we started training and guys are going, wait a minute, this isn't safe. This is not a safe way to do it. And he said, if you want a guaranteed safety, then take the day off. Right. And he also said, I don't want to go to training from a guy who read a book and decided to put together a training. I want to be trained by someone who has been there, done that and understands it. So when people come up with all these ideas and they've never eaten that crap sandwich, you know, I mean, I, I don't yeah. wanna, you know, I don't want to drop the S word on the podcast.
0: That's okay. I've everyone who's words. listening
1: knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. The proverbial shit sandwich. You take it one bite at a time. And no one who is if people have never done that, they I I just find no credibility in their commentary. Now, not keeping it doom and gloom. Um, police departments are trying to address this. You know, they're trying to do enhance the training of um de-escalation. But when you look at defunding the police and things of that nature, they have no training budget. I mean, how many police departments, Pat, have you talked to or chiefs or they have zero training budget? Or it's the
0: well, first, first thing they cut. It, it almost goes every time. And right. and and, it, and it, when, uh, well, let's just use New York City for an example. And um, I, w- I was speaking with a uh, retired inspector Sheehan from, uh, from NYPD and he used to run the training division for NYPD. Mm-hmm. And that we, we kind of got into the same conversation. And you know, you would talk you would talk about scale, right? I mean, that's it's it's amazing how much they have to do with as many people as they have to push through it. But if you were to cut like it sounds and it is a ton, right? A billion dollars. You cut a right. billion dollars out of the police budget, you're like, oh my gosh, like. Uh, maybe some on the outside look look at all the stuff that we could do with a billion dollars we could start new uh new and different programs that are going to drive down the calls for service in policing uh, and let's just let's just use an, an example and say okay in, in the in the fairy tale land that you live in where that does work how long do you think that's going to take what what do you think the lag time is oh well that's probably going to take three to five years at a minimum right before you could even have any kind of Evidence-based data that's going to suggest whether you're what the programs that you're implementing are effective or not, um, and in that meantime, that you're you're not cutting the salaries of the people that are there. So ninety to ninety-two percent of salaries for police departments go to paying or the, or the budgets go to paying salaries and benefits, healthcare costs, everything. So now you're less than you know. Generally speaking, you're eight to twelve percent. Uh, of a budget that's going to go towards operational cost, and mm-hmm. you know now you got to buy you got to buy body cameras, you got to buy equipment that goes on the belt, you have to buy laptops that go in the cars, you have to buy firearms, you have to buy bullets, you have to buy all these things, and oh, and then by the way, in there you also have to to spend money on training, and uh, and then the biggest the biggest misconception that people have is that police officers are training all the time. Well, they're not because police officers are working all the time. <laughs> because when people call 911, they expect somebody to show up. And so, in order to get somebody to show up, you have to have people there to do the job. And then, right. yeah, so it is a vicious, vicious cycle. And um, unfortunately, training does get caught, and, and that just puts more pressure on your existing workforce all four you know I, I think is kind of you know in a way it's kind of like a grand illusion that's occurring right now it's like if we only trained our police officers better then we would have better outcomes and you know i i call that you know it's the <laughs> fundamental attribution error right you know it's exactly you know, what it is we have a systems problem not a people problem and not a policing problem it doesn't mm-hmm. and i say that not you know and i believe that 100 percent that policing has never been better in america does it mean that we can't be better? Absolutely not. There's always things that we're improving on, but if you go back even 20 years ago, the profession is so much better.
1: Sure. So much. improved. Police. The new generation of police officers are smarter than our generation. You know, By I mean, far. just, yeah. just from, just from a health standpoint, like when I came out of the job, everyone's smoking, you know, at, Hey, where are we going out partying after work? You know, now you, you know, I always make a joke, you know, with the younger generation. I'm like, now you ask a young police officer, like, hey, you want to go get a couple beers after work? They'll be like, I'm going to run six miles. You're like, well, why are you going to run to the bar? I'll drive you. What's wrong with you? Right. Like <laughs> it, just from a health standpoint, they're, they're you know, they're in a different, they're in a different world. Um, and from a cognitive standpoint, they are too. You know, there's, there's not, I mean, you know, there's meatheads everywhere you go. And what I mean is like meatheads, like, yeah, you know, hound. You know, no one does that anymore. You know, it, it's not, it's a, di- it's a different police world. And I agree with you that police, uh, policing now is probably the best it's ever been. Um, I do, when you were ta- telling about the training budget, I, I remember being on the HBT team in a sniper and we'd have to drive from wherever you lived in Chicago. In Chicago, you have to live in the city when you're a Chicago police officer. So you could live on the South side, North side, whatever you have to drive the to Great Lake Naval base, Right. So I think it's like North Chicago or something. So you're driving, if you live on the South side, like I did at that time, you're driving two hours to get there, hour and a half. You get there and I, I'm not kidding you. There was one or two trainings where we went to, and you know, guys, if you're listening to this, don't kill me if I'm, if I'm a little inaccurate, but I'm positive. There was a training as a sniper where we could only go and fire one bullet because we didn't have any bullets. I swear to you. And we all well, looked at I each other it. like, are you kidding me right now? And, and then, you know, one of the smart asses is like, well,
0: you know, all you need is
1: one bullet as a sniper, right? One shot, <laughs> one kill. You're like, yeah, okay. You know, we were all sharing rifles. Like I shared a rifle with one or two other guys. Like you're going to tell me the reticle on the scope is exactly the same. Like you're trying to match us up close or telling us aim for the chest. Cause you can't miss like, you're like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I mean, this is what you had to deal with. My, my former lieutenant, E. Fred Bossy, he had zero budget, like zero, like whatever we could get our hands on, we, we took. So it it's amazing what you can do when you don't have anything. You know, there's a quote out there that says, we, the willing led by the unknowing, are doing the impossible for the ungrateful. We've done so much. We've done so much with nothing for so long. We don't know what it's like to do something with anything, Right. And That's I, I don't brilliant. know. Right. I don't know who said that quote. Someone could Google it, but I, it's it's very true. And to take people, it, I had a friend who was working. We have a consent decree in Chicago and he was one of the deputy monitors. Right. And I worked in the academic world with him. He was never a police officer, an academic guy. And he's a great guy. Right. Very great person. He wanted to come and help the city, his city, you know, things like that. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, it's, you're delusional, right? Like it was, wait till you get here, right? And we're talking about training and people being deficient in training. And I'm like, dude, you're, uh, who's going to answer the, just working in the 8th district. I remember one night we had 356 calls for service because I called the OEMC because I couldn't believe it. It was like my first week back in patrol as a sergeant. Like how many calls did we have last night? They're like 356 and that does not include stacked events. Like, are you kidding me? Like in that eight hours that everyone answered, they still wrote tickets. They still made arrests. I mean, they were like going in, processing paper, going right back out again. I, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't fathom that. Like that's how much work they did. So who is going to cover that when they're at training, learning about the escalation, which is something they do every single day, multiple times a day.
0: Yep. Yeah. And, and not just because it's the right thing to do but because it's it's a survival tactic. That's, Correct. Yeah, that's how you keep from getting yourself into a fight where force does escalate and and people get hurt, you know, suspects and officers alike. So yeah, then, it's you know that's it's in in you know there are there are police departments, you know, small agencies that won't run 356 calls in a year, right? And you know you, you got one shift in one precinct Uh, right that's running it in a night Uh, that's not the entire city and so sometimes it's just people just don't understand the scale of it and that's why i try to always encourage community members especially those that are outspoken about police reform go to a police department and participate in a citizens police academy you know don't just be a voice that's that's barking go participate get a look behind the curtain and actually see what's going on and and see what your police department is doing. Take 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 some time to understand what policing in America really is before you try to recommend things that need to be changed. Um, and that that right now, everybody, it's it's easy to tweet, right? Like you're talking about social media, it's easy to fire off an opinion in <laughs> 120 characters. a warrior, yeah, keyboard yeah. warrior. I've just look at with my tweet. I've just changed the world, and I feel so much yeah. better about myself.
1: Your Twitter, your Twitter
0: lottery. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. You you brought up a couple of points and things are clicking in my head. One of them is how can you be a command level person, right? Executive staff of a police department when, you know, when you have political leadership, knowing that if you make the wrong decision, like even if it's a, a minuscule decision or it's an opinion difference, you're, you're, you're out, you're out. Like th- that's not a comfortable place to be for executives either. Right, so how are you supposed to implement change and make sure these things happen if you know that the minute you make a decision because you've done the same job for twenty plus years, so you understand this, and somebody in the political realm—and I'm not going political, I'm not being—you know, not trying to say anything—that no, that's, that's everywhere in America. That's just right. the
0: way the system is set up.
1: But back, but you—you got to admit, you—I mean, I'd have thirty-one years on a job right now, right? You, you, you would have extensive years on a job too. Back when I first started, those bosses were like, they were etched in stone. Like you knew that they made the decisions and, you know, those things happen. Now it seems like, oh, well you messed up. So you're done. Right. Like I, I, and I understand CEOs of companies, same thing. This is, this is police work is not a matter of, of, you know, dollars and cents. It's life and death in many situations. So political leaders need to pick the best people for those jobs and then stand behind them. You know, they also need, they also need professional development too. Right. They need, right. They need, they need, they need those things. They need the confidence to make the decisions. That's, um, one of the topics is you were talking about, like we're talking about budgets and cutting budgets and, you know, de escalation and training and all those things. Like, how, how, what is the expectation of a human being? People make mistakes. We're not, we're not robots. We're not perfect. Right. So there has to be some sort of checks and balances. And, 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 you know, I was always told that. Uh, discipline is progressive. Someone makes a mistake, you know, counsel them. And then you go to the next step and you go to the next step. Now we're, we're, you know, we're, we're throwing babies away with the bathwater, you know, because of social media, social media, you know, in, in 1997 uh, my partner and I uh, stopped a guy. And as soon as he got out of the car, he was in my face, screaming, telling me my mama did this, my mama did that. He's yelling. And, All those things. Now, you know, I I knew that the guy had some sort of you could tell immediately that the man had some sort of mental gap. Right. Challenge. I mean, he he just wasn't his his actions were not what his words were. Right. They were doing that stuff then, you know, or in 2000, 2001, after 9-11. Right. My, I mean, day of nine 11, everyone gets called in. We're out patrolling downtown. Chicago is like a ghost town. My partner and I go into Starbucks to get a coffee. Right. And there's people in there and they start clapping and people are like, let us buy your coffee for you. Let us buy your coffee. Two weeks later, Pat, I, I you not two weeks later, my partner and I go into the same Starbucks to get a coffee. And a lady standing, no claps, no one's buying our coffee. And a lady standing behind us looks at us and goes, don't you guys have anything better to do than to stand around here and get coffee? And I looked at my partner and I went, oh, we're assholes again. That, that was short-lived. That was short-lived. So you're talking about 1997 and 2001, something that would happen regularly now, it would be posted all over you know, social media. Look at these cops getting coffee. You know, God forbid they get a coffee. They have no idea that we haven't stopped in, in two hours, three hours, four hours. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, when you're on one call and you're just hoping that you get a break because you got to go to the bathroom so bad that right. you need, you need a bathroom stop. And right. You know, people that, you know, when you sit in an office, you don't think about stuff like that. When you're, when you're in a car and you're running car to car, I, right. yeah, I, maybe I shouldn't tell the story. I'm going to tell it anyway. Just because go ahead. Please Here, do. Here's I got a you doing things you wouldn't normally do. Yeah. I've got <laughs> a, uh, I, yeah. Uh, I've got a recruit with me who is now the chief of police. This is a long time ago. Awesome. and He, he was a, uh, he was, he was my trainee and we, it was a very busy night. Uh, we were on one call and I, I've got to go to the bathroom bad. And we, we get to, uh, uh, we get to a resolution and we're getting into the car and then we get another call comes out and it's, uh, it's basically a, a a really bad domestic on gone, you know, where we think we might have actually a hostage situation. Mm -hmm. And so there's no, you you know, you're not stopping Like you can't go to the bathroom. You got to go. And so we, we get to that next call, we get there with the other group and, you know, we're, we're up on the door. We're trying to assess what's going on. Short version is, it's a very violent domestic going on behind the door. And there's some threats for violence. We have to kick in the door we take the suspect into custody. Everything's, you know, like appears to be clear in the moment. And and I, you know, as soon as like we've got the suspect secure, I'm like, I'm going to check the second floor, you know, secondary. So I run up the stairs. I've been in these apartments hundreds of times. So I know the layout and like all I'm going up is look. Pete, make sure nobody else is there. And I have to go into the bathroom. bathroom. Because otherwise I'm going to wet my pants as a a grown man, adult. And, uh, you know, when I told some family and friends this story later, you know, you get around and, you know, once the stories start coming out a little bit, you know, they're like, they're laughing. They think that's hysterical. And, you know, I think it's kind of funny now, but at the moment I didn't think it was that funny because I was like, I might actually... You know, it's it's like I'm either crawling in the bushes right now and some they're gonna have to wait for me to kick in that door or we're taking some kind of action. <laughs> right. And, and I know I'm not the only one that's got stories like that. So are you
1: kidding me? Stopping yeah. in the middle of an alley in the city of Chicago on the west side, I'm like, I gotta go, you know, you're out <laughs> and you're like that's it. Watch my back. Here it goes. Right. You know, yeah. like you're just you're like looking around for can't like I. Again, and now imagine I, you're a
0: female officer, right? You know, for the female. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Right.
1: I, so I mean, it's this. I I don't think people truly understand it being in acad- academia now, like having these conversations with academics, like, you know, we need to come up with solutions to you know, for police to be more effective. And I, and I, and I think to myself, like you, you don't have an effing clue what you're talking about right now. You have never, you have never, ever in your life been punched in the face at all, much less as a police officer. You've never, you've never been in a fight in your life. You've never been, you know, you've never been challenged ever, you know, ever in your life. Because if you, if you were, there's like boundaries, you know, there's like human boundaries. You know, my grandfather used to say like, you know, you could tell somebody something a hundred times and you got to slap them, right? <laughs> now, I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do, right? I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. You know, you could do it figuratively or you could do it realistically, right? But you have these conversations and, and I, like my, my mouth is wide open. Like I cannot believe you're talking about this right now because I, I said this once. I go, have you ever at three in the morning gone to a call where you walk in? Now nah, I'm five foot nine. Right. Average. You walk into a call and there's a guy that's like six foot six, 300 pounds, just ripped, just got out of jail. He is ripped. Right. He's been doing body weight exercises, lifting weights for the last five years. This guy is, is just, just buff. He's big. He's sweating. He's angry. He's high. Right. And he just turned his grandmother's face in the hamburger because she just got yelled at him, told him, stop drinking and smoking drugs in my house and get a job. And he decided to punch his grandma. And now grandma's like, take him to jail. Now you got grandma screaming. And then this guy's like, I'm not going to jail. And he takes his shirt off, kicks his shoes off and goes, now what? You know, you pepper spray him and he goes. "Uh." (laughs) Right. Or you shoot him with the taser and he takes the prongs out and he throws them back at you right now you're like okay we got to go mechanical with this right we got to go old school right here we go and then you got to fight with this guy like what is a social worker going to do there going to get thrown right out the window
0: yeah right well, and, so, and we've seen that happen already you know right. several of those social workers have been killed in the line of duty already but you know right. you know it doesn't get a lot of attention
1: correct because it's go, go it doesn't go with the dynamic but regardless when i'm having these discussions with people i'm like has that ever happened to you well no So do you think that a hug to this maladjusted gang member, like, Hey man, bring it in for the real thing, bro. Let's, (laughs) let's hug it out. I know. I know. I know you have a bad family history. Your family of origin is skewed, right? I understand. Let's sit down and talk. He don't want to talk to me. I'm the man. He wants to punch me in the face. That's it. Like, I'm not going to fix him. So certainly not in that moment. Correct. So when we talk all the training in the world, I'll, I'll, you know, you have to include what I like to call the human condition or the human dynamic. Humans can, you could talk to somebody in a hostage situation for an hour, five hours, 10 hours, right. Or as you know, a suicidal subject, you're talking to this person on the phone for hours. You got a di- good dynamic. You got good, good dialogue. And then just like this, to, you know what? Hey, thanks. Boom. That's it. It's over. Like without even warning. So, you can have all these trainings and contingency plans and all this stuff, but you cannot account for the human condition or the human dynamic. I can't read people's minds.
0: Well, you know? Maybe someday we'll be able to do that.
1: Yeah, with AI, yeah. right? Yeah,
0: AI. That's, yeah. that's in uh, Neuralink. Yeah. You know, we'll just hit the switch and shut them down for for the night. They've had or they'll enough.
1: send Robocop. You know, <laughs> yeah, dead, we'll or alive, have... dead or alive, dead yeah. or alive, you're coming with me with me,
0: me. right? Um, okay. So, you know, these are, this is kind of, these are the challenges, right? And so mm-hmm. one of the other conversations we got into, and I think it kind, of, it kind of ties into this. So you've got to train people, you've got to fund them, you got to fund the agencies so you can send them the training and you have to have enough people to be able to get people off duty to be able to train. Mm-hmm. And every agency is going to be different. And so there's, you know, there are certain things as any police officer, any, anywhere in America, there's some core uh, skills and abilities that we all need to have and be able to do. Uh, But then there are some nuances uh, depending on what specifically your role is and and what, you know, what your agency mission is. So outside of that, you got to have sufficient people. So you have to have the funding to, to, bring in enough bodies and then you have to have enough bodies to not only be able to spend, give them adequate time to train, but then also give them adequate time to train consistently over Mm -hmm. time. Uh, Because most of the skills that we're talking about are perishable skills. And you have, you know, you got to get in there and you got to train and you got to practice a SWAT sniper taking, you know, one shot a month with one round, you know, isn't, isn't enough. It's it wasn't better. even a
1: month. It was like every two months or three months.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I and I think those are so when we hear people talking about, you know, doing evaluations of police departments and, and consent decrees are a whole nother thing, right? Um, yeah, how much how much money do municipalities spend on consent decrees that could be spent on training? Uh, you know, we're gonna spend millions of dollars, we're gonna pay an outside vendor to come in and tell uh police departments, what they should be doing better. We're going to pay them 10 times what any one of those commanders or one of those police officers is getting paid. Um, and then we're not going to have any accountability for the results from what I'm telling them that they should be doing. And the, and now, and now the agency and the, and the the municipality is, is on the hook for, for the spend. And I'm not saying there isn't some benefit that can come from those programs. Uh, but I think, I, I think again, as a country, if we're going to reimagine policing and we're going to reinvest in policing, then that that has to be one of the things that we look at. Are, are these consent decrees worthwhile? What are we benefiting from them? And is it improving? You know, what does the data suggest? Is it improving the profession? Or as, I think, as we're seeing, uh, if you follow Bob Scales at all on LinkedIn, you know he's very he's very outspoken sure. about some of the things, and I don't, I don't think he's necessarily uh anti-police reform i think he's just he, you know he's just been there he's had first hand experience uh in a in a large police department trying to manage a consent decree and mm-hmm. and you know it's bureaucracy bureaucracy for all its great intent sometimes just gets in the way and makes things uh, even more challenging so we got to find the money to pay for the people to pay for the training and 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 the equipment and do it in in sufficiently uh well you know with sufficiently inadequately uh so you can't expect professional performance when you don't invest professionally in in their performance
1: uh Uh, well yeah I mean 100 percent agreed and with Bob scales I, I agree with a lot many of his points um you know, I quote one of the old timers I used to work with, you know, so again, I'd have 31 if I were still on the job, this guy would have, you know, 51 if he were still on the job. And, you know, he, he looked at me once and goes, all this stuff is a racket kid. It's all a racket. It's all a racket. Right. So, um, you have people that have incredible experience and incredible backgrounds, right. That could do much of this training. Now, when, when you look at it, from a perspective of someone on the outside, you think, Oh, these officers are, are doing, you know, they're trying to address this and police, um, the, the consent decrees and all that stuff. Great. Great. Okay. But when you have a bureaucracy that here, example, um, in 2005, we wrote a grant, the USC urban areas security initiative after nine 11. Right. So the city of Chicago got a Buku box, right? So we put, night vision goggles in there. In 2005, SWAT team in Chicago did not have night vision goggles. So we put in there we want night vision goggles, right? So in 2008, we still did not have night vision goggles. And uh one of my colleagues was shot um in an alley, you know, a sergeant on the SWAT team, uh the the vest and his Pmag stopped the round, right? We did a presentation at the I Two A Illinois Tactical Office Association annual conference. We did it on it. We had the pictures, everything. Um, this individual was highly motivated. Came out of the gangway and shot shot him. So, um, someone, and I don't know who it could have been, me, could have been the former commander who's now passed on. So we'll just leave that alone. Wrote a two from to the deputy chief and said, you know, had this sergeant been wearing night vision goggles that may have stopped him from getting shot, something along those lines. Then all of a sudden, about six months later, we got night vision goggles, right? And then we had to argue that we did not want the technology that we wrote for in 2005. It's 2008. We got better technology. And you had to argue about that. Well, this is what you asked for. Yeah, in 2005. (laughs) So that bureaucracy, I mean, seriously, like that bureaucracy is frustrating. Or we don't have a contract with this company. Will they make the premier armored vehicle? You know, another story, another firsthand. They make the premier, they, the Lenko Bearcat at that time is the premier armored vehicle, right? I would have,
0: probably still is, yeah.
1: Correct. Every suburb around us, we have this Ilias in Illinois. They have the Illinois Law Enforcement Alarm System, right? So you have, um, uh, it's a mutual aid pact. You know, MOUs with counties and everything like that. So basically, emergency in Chicago, people are coming from the suburbs, right? Well, to get them to actually go outside the contract, true story, we had to tell, we had to stress interoperability. Like I was blown, when you get into those positions, and you know this, when you work on the street, the street is easy. The street stuff handles itself. When you get in the administrative positions, that's when you're you're going and you're like, I'm going to bang my head right here for the next half hour. Right. Because it's absolutely crazy. So when you get in those positions, so that I think is the problem, Pat, is like the bureaucracy of it. Like if you have the chief executive officer from a business standpoint, which would be your chief coming to your mayor, right, saying, hey, or your chief operations, whatever you want to call them in law enforcement in the business world, we need this. This is what we need, right? The process shouldn't – I understand legality. I understand things like that, but, I mean, come on. The night vision thing, that's a true story. The bear cat thing, that's a true story. It took us two years to get the bear cat. The Chicago Police Department SWAT team. <laughs> you know, a, the suburban areas around us have this already. So I think what you're talking about that, the bureaucracy is one of the things that needs to be enhanced. It's not so much – the police, we're doing what we can. The bosses are doing what they can, but uh, you have to untie their hands. I think the money that you spend um, on things because of contractual agreements and things like that, maybe you may be able to save money if you want. You, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, budgets are they're a beast in and of themselves because there there are sides to budgets. There, you know, like. You have in Indiana, you have the State Board of Accounts, and then you right. have rules about what money can be spent on what. Mm-hmm. So it it can, you know, the, the frustrating, you know, part sometimes can be is like, hey, there. here are things that we know that we need, but there just isn't the money there. Like there is no money. So now you've got to make decisions about, okay, well, you know, you have to prioritize what are we going to spend money on? Um, but then, you know, on the flip side of that too is, if you have if you have ideas and suggestions and for things that you want um you know write that proposal you know make a needs you know make that needs a, a assessment and you know provide some data that that can support it and then you know, you, you try to build that into your budget as you go. So, Correct. Like, right. some, I, you right. know, sometimes guys get a little frustrated because, hey, I want this and I want it tomorrow. And it's just like, well, I can't snap my fingers and make it happen tomorrow.
1: Correct. If Understood. The private, the private
0: sector, they can do that kind of stuff, right? right. If they've got the money and they're smart uh, and if it's going to be a good business spend, but we don't produce widgets in policing, right? We're not, right. We're, you know, it's, we can't, you know, we can't forecast in the, same, in the same way. So you have to, you do have to think long-term and um but that it but it all comes down to spending right it it does come down to budgets and it comes you know in the end it really does come down to money and how much you know communities and what we're seeing right now even uh like officers are leaving the chicagos the minneapolis the seattle the indianapolis metro Uh, their officers are leaving those departments and going to your ring cities your suburbs that do have very strong support from their community and they have strong financial support. So, you know, they're not, they're going to go and it, which is opposite to what it used to be the 10, 15 years ago, right. You used to have the, actually the reverse trend. And now, and now we're seeing that it's um uh, it's really um it, it, well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a traffic flow pattern. Right. Um So, oh man. Yeah. We definitely got off on a tangent there, which is interesting. Yeah. Right.
1: Right, right. Well, I mean the train I mean the training, but like I understand the budgetary confinements and and you know all the all the the laws and everything like that. But I mean it's kind of ridiculous that you have to wait two years to get something. That for you need. Chicago
0: PD, that just yeah, that just that kind of that is that blows me away a little bit, you know, for such a yeah, it's, such a large agency that's you
1: know, priorities, yeah. you know, people you know in a police department like Chicago, there people have specialties, right? right? So you may have uh, someone once asked me, like, what was the hardest part about being a Chicago police officer, like seeing all the stuff on the street? I'm like, no, that that stuff kind of handled itself. It was dealing with, you know, uh, not all leaders now don't please don't take offense, but dealing with inept leadership. <laughs> Right? Like not you, but oh no, oh, leaders no. Trust Chicago, me. I'm, like leaders on Chicago. I've sure had my fair
0: share of critics. Right.
1: Like they know who they are that are inept, you know, or pretending to be something they're not, you know, or that that was that was probably, you know, and I've talked about this with my students, you know, like, am I crazy feeling this way? Like, no. So if I if I had to put money into something, it would be train like the train, it would be good training, right? Because The ideology of any training is good training. No, good training is good training. Right. Um, And I would put it in wellness. Right. Like, and then finding ways to enhance work-life balance. Cause like right now people in Chicago, they're getting their days off canceled again. You know, people are working all these shifts. I mean, it's affecting their relationships. It's affecting their communication you know, it's affecting their performance because the number one thing, I mean, you you were talking about strength and conditioning, right? You were talking about that earlier. You do that. So what's the number one thing? Rest, sleep, recovery, recovery. So how the hell are you supposed to do that? If you can't get a a freaking day off,
0: right? Right. You can't. And And that just puts more, uh, got a great episode. Um, Coming up with uh, Yulise Balbon, she's a researcher from Stanford. Um, she has a product that's coming out. I I don't want to spoil the episode, but stay mm-hmm. tuned for it. But there's a perfect example of someone in the academic world that's really trying to make a, a, an impact in policing and uh, going along with budgets, right? One of the things that, you know, where she's experiencing a little frustration and like a lot, you know, now that I'm on the outside, you know, so, you know working with a few startup companies here and there, you know, th- that's the struggle, right? It's y- y- people do want to help the police and they've got some great products and some great ideas, some great, you know, there is some good training that's out there, but there's just no money. The money's just not there. there there's right? no, there's no money. You
1: know how many things I've done free for police departments? Now don't yeah. start calling me everyone. <laughs> so, like I got, I got a lit right. Like I I got kids, you know what I mean? So, and uh, you know, all joking aside for yeah. free, you know, like leadership, Stuff just frontline leadership stuff, or even wellness, like you know, a day, hey, I'll come out there for four, five, six hours, whatever you need, because no one has a budget for that. I mean, it's it's really incredible. I mean, you're expecting perfection out of imperfect human beings to begin with, so why not give them all the tools to be as perfect as they possibly can? You know, Um, and you're just simply not doing that. So that that leaves a lot of room for problems.
0: Yes. All right. So now let's, let's talk solutions. Let's, let's, yeah. and and you just kind of touched on it. Obviously cop optimization is the theme of the show and you know, that's something that you have invested in yourself significantly, right? Like you mm-hmm. um you have gone above and beyond and you have Inside, you know, most police departments usually have some kind of college tuition reimbursement plan. And without get, even getting into the whole conversation about who makes the best cop, is it the college graduate? Is it the the military veteran, combat veteran? Is it, you know, the father of three? Who is it? And, you, you know, the in the end, I think the simple answer is it's any of the above or none of the above. It, just, it really is individually based. And, um, with that in mind, w- once you get somebody in your agency, the, you know, the, I think the education is, is critically important and agencies should do whatever they can to support officers getting, you know, continuing their education, provide ongoing training on the job. Uh, but then also, I think there's, there also has to be an individual investment where people are going to just make the decision, like, Hey, like. I want to be better and I'm going to invest in myself. So, um, it sounds like you have gone, you've gone down that road. That you've gone really way above and beyond with all the education well, that you have. So what do you, I mean, what, what would you, what would be your number one, your, your, I guess your position on that. And then two, your suggestions for young officers who are, you know, trying to decide should I go back to school or not?
1: Well, education is important for me. It was very important, right? I, I went to community college uh, while I was working as a community service officer. And then when my opportunity came to become a full-time sworn police officer, I I left college to take that job. You didn't need college at the time, you know, when I got on the job. So, but like Chicago now to be a lieutenant, you need a a bachelor's degree, you know, and I always wanted to, you know, when I got my degree in leadership, I got it because I'm I'm like, I want to be the superintendent of police someday. I had lofty goals you know, um, and to back up those goals, I need to me, I needed education. I think education does a couple of things. It doesn't only prepare you for your career in law enforcement. It prepares you for the afterlife, you know, the after law enforcement job. Also for me, it was a positive thing to keep my mind occupied. You know, I struggle with alcoholism. I'm a sober man, right. By the grace of God today. And, um, also the steps you know for me i believe in a higher power and it kept my mind in a positive place because if i wasn't reading or writing papers or doing something i'd be drinking and acting like a fool right so right. for me it it was several it was several things but i would tell a young police officer get your education you know while you're young while you're working and if your department has a tuition reimbursement chicago has one right they have an incredible tuition reimbursement plan they pay um, for a bachelor's degree, 100% for two classes a semester if you get an A. If you get a B, the percentage goes down. And then for master's, they pay 75% for two classes a semester. I mean, that's incredible. And our that's college amazing. gives our college gives the other 25%. We have a scholarship. So essentially, you can go to school. I'm not pumping my school. I'm just giving you an example. You, you can come to Calumet College and get a bachelor's and a master's degree if you're a Chicago police officer and never pay a cent. If you get an A, right. So why wouldn't you do something like that? I mean, it just, it just benefits you. I, you know, I seen, I've seen a study, um, about, um, a study that said, um, a college educated police officer will help save, you know, people of color's lives. That, that was a recent study. But if you go back to the international associations of chiefs of police, they did that in the early 2000s. They did a similar study or late, you know, uh, um, 1990s, where they said, you know, uh, a college educated police officer uses less medical time, has less complaints for uh, excessive force, is, you know, better with multiple cultures, you know, exposure to that in college. So, um, you know, I got to agree with you. I don't know if that's true. I mean, you can get a military veteran with the same thing, right? right? It's an individual thing. It's like, what makes a great leader? Are they born or are they taught? and to be a really great leader i think it's a combination of both you you have to have some you know skills that you were born with that you hone over time through experience and education that that is optimization right so Absolutely. so i think that i would tell a young police officer get your education um get it in something um that you're interested in you know, if it's public safety, get in public safety from a college. If it's criminal justice, get in criminal justice. You want to go to law school, go to law school. You know, that's what I would tell a police officer, because it's only going to benefit you on the job. You know, your mind, when you take promotional exams, you're already used to studying. You're already used to doing things like that. So you're you're in school, your brain is in school environment, your brain is in, you know, reading and retention uh, of material, so when you go for that promotional exam, you're already a step ahead. That makes sense.
0: Uh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, th- and I think sometimes people, you know, maybe mistake the idea that they, I can't be an effective police officer if I don't have a college degree. Not true. You can be Not very effective. Not true sure um, at all. What. Exposing yourself to new educational opportunities, whether it is through training or formal education, it opens you up to new ideas <clears throat> and new potential. So you can see a different way. And and now, you know, in the end, what you're what you're really doing is is you're putting more tools in your tool belt. You're giving you're getting that exposure to uh, the possibility of a more efficient and effective way to do things. Um, I used to use this example. I don't know if this is a good example or not. I'm like, go back into uh, uh, caveman times, and this is what I used to. I used to, when I was talking with young officers. On one side, you got a big lake, right? And these two it was two villages on opposite sides of the lake. And on one side, you've got a village that has uh, carts where they're hauling heavy stuff around, and they've, they, they have figured out an axle and they figured out somewhat of a wheel. And the more they, the more they pull this card around, the harder they work at it, those, the edges of the, those wheels start to smooth out the wheels become smoother. And eventually they figure out, wow, if we, if just, we just create these round wheels, we can really move more stuff more efficiently. And mm-hmm. on the opposite side of the lake where people Don't try to use new tools or new ideas or new things. They're still, they're still carrying stuff on their back and they're doing things in a less efficient manner. And I mean, there, there are examples (laughs) as far back as a millennia, right. On on where technology and where improvements actually, you know, things get better. And, and the other, so I'm like, yeah, there's just two examples that maybe not great examples, but in today's day and age, when I started in 1995, uh, in a squad car. I, I did time in, a, in military police in the Air Force as well, but mm-hmm. I got it. I had a mobile radio. I had my gun belt. I had a 357. Um, I had a collapsible baton, a pair of handcuffs, and, a, and that's pretty much it, you know, and a portable radio on my hip. And today's car is... Now you have a laptop you have an a dash cam, you have radar, you have cell phones, you've got so much technology, so much stuff going on in a car. Does it do, you know at at the core does it make you a better police officer? Well, maybe not. I mean, it's still the person in the car that's got to operate all that. The you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is the times change, equipment changes, technology changes, we find new and improved ways to do things. We gain efficiencies, we get better, we learn, and then we recycle and we go through these cycles again and again and again. And education is just that way to do is to challenge yourself personally, uh, to learn more, to be exposed to more. So you can challenge your own ideas and your own thoughts and your own beliefs, and then put those to work to be a higher level professional in what you're already doing.
1: So, Agreed. Right. And going back to your point about having all these tools, right. When I came on the job, pepper spray, gun, extra magazines, you know, baton, I didn't even have a collapsible baton. So you were a step ahead. Right. We didn't have that. We still had the wooden stick. Right. Um, So tools are great. Tools are awesome, but it's the person using the tools. I I don't golf. Right. Because I I used to before my hand injury. Now I, I can't. Right. So I will go on a golf outing with my friends just to get some fresh air, kind of hang out for some laughs and watch them try to golf, right? So you'll take one of them will walk up to a ball and take a swing and miss or dub it. And then they throw the club and they start hitting the club on the ground. And I look at them and say the same thing every time, Pat, and I know they want to kill me when I do it. I look at them and I go, I guarantee it's not the club, but what it is, is operator error for sure. <laughs> And they're usually like, shut the F up, man. I hate you. I don't know really why you come here. You don't even golf, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, right. So, you know, you can have all those tools, but if you don't know how to use them effectively, if you don't train with them or you don't, you're not taught how to use those things. You know, as a wellness coach and a mental health therapist, I do I do those things with, with police officers largely, right? Um, I also deal with special needs families, right? And when you talk to everybody, everyone's looking. I need to change. I need to do this. I need to do that. The first thing I tell them is education. Right. Second thing I tell them is training. Right. You have to keep your sword sharp. You know, you you have to continually go to processes, you know, learn new things, do continue education. Right. As a therapist, as a wellness coach, as as an instructor, you have to do that, too, as a student, as someone, a police officer, I would also tell young police officers this on the Chicago police department. When I was there, I spent a lot of money out of pocket on my own training. I paid out of pocket to go to trainings and people would say like, why are you doing that? If they wanted you to do that, they, you know, they'd pay for it. And I'm like, cause it's my life. It's my life, you know? And if they really rode me, I'm like, man, I hope you get a nine millimeter. Cause I might need your bullets. I might have to take them off your dead body, you know? And they'd be like, Oh man, you're a jerk. And I'm like, well, just leave yeah. me alone, right? So uh, you co- constantly have to keep that sword sharp, right? Sharpen, yeah. right? Yeah, you, you have to keep it sharp. And the only way to do that is through new experiences. And that could be education. That could be going and getting some sort of mental health therapy or some coaching. Do something. Don't just sit there and don't wait. And there's another thing, and I'm not getting on a younger generation. I love you guys. I really do. Right. But here's the thing: no one's going to come and help you. No one's going to volunteer. To say, you know what, Pat, I think you're a great guy. Let me give you the keys to the kingdom. You got to earn them. We all had to earn that. Nothing's changed. If anything, it's harder with social media and things like that. Right. Um, people now, I don't know how many videos I see. You see the same thing. Everyone sees it and everyone asks the same question. Like there's a police officer fighting with some guy on the street and the guy's getting the better of the police officer. How many angles of video do they have of that with people with their phones instead of someone coming up and helping?
0: Yeah, put the phone down and go help.
1: Right. So we're all dealing with this dynamic that's unique and it's new, but everything changes. So go learn how to deal with that. Police officers coming on the job now are used to that technology. I mean, they have this. And it's always in their face, right? I mean, their phone is always in their face. You know, and it's – I had a lieutenant friend of mine who – I went to grade school with her and she told me she went to roll call one night and she had to tell everybody, put your phones down during roll. I couldn't even imagine doing that to some of my bosses, you know, Oh
0: my gosh, no way. Right.
1: Right. So taking that, uh, taking the opportunities to keep your sword sharpened is very important. And if you, if you don't do it, then your expectation cannot be excellence, right? You you cannot expect yourself to be excellent or the performance that you're doing to be excellent because you're just simply not working on excellence.
0: I love it. Well, we've been going almost, almost 90 minutes now. yeah. And I don't think there's a better way to end it than with that right there. Um. We're going to have to do part two because I, I got a lot of things I didn't even touch on. We got on a couple of tangents, Yeah, um, but that's all right. Uh, uh, I hate, I really appreciate this. Um, so it, I know there was some things I didn't touch on, but any questions, anything that you want to, you know, maybe, no. maybe close out on before we, before we wrap it up for tonight, but I, I really do appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, all your self-investment in your continued love for the profession your desire to, to to raise the next generation of cops and and you know your work with the university to to educate the next generation of cops so that that's that's quite a noble calling
1: well I'd like to close by saying thanks for having me on Pat um it was really an honor to be part of this I've listened to podcasts very impressive um and and I can appreciate what you're doing for our our brothers and sisters our our you know, our family business, right? Right. On. Like this is, this is our family. Um, I would close by saying, make sure you take care of yourself. You know, um, it's not, there's no, this, the word stigma and I have to, I have to bring this up. The word stigma is not realistic, right? Especially for your mental health. You know, if you see something and it's bothering you, go get some help, right? There's plenty of people that you can see. Um, I, I've, I've seen a therapist for years. I'm not ashamed. Um, you know, make sure you take care of yourself and make sure your priorities are correct. You know, um, and what I mean by that is like you're you have you have to be a healthy individual to be a good family member um, and you have different life roles. You're not just a police officer and that's it. You, you could be a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, a son, a daughter. You know, make sure your priorities are in line and make sure you take care of yourself and find uh, find that balance so you can do a career. And walk away from this unscathed and maybe find a new career because you're still young. You know. Yeah. So um, and if anyone ever needs anything from me, just reach out.
0: Where can they get in touch with you? The email or anything like that you want to share?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, there's a few different ways you can get a hold of me. Um one is my email at the college, which is dmaguire at ccsj.edu, and that's dmcg. U-i-r-e at ccsj.edu or you can reach me at danny at crosstown wellness. Um, and that's uh Danny D-A-N-N-Y at C-R-O-S-S-T-O-W-N-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S
0: dot com. And we'll try to throw those in the show notes as well. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks, sir. Really appreciate it. So on that note, you know, let's hire healthy, let's retire healthy, and let's bankrupt our pension systems because we're living long, happy, healthy lives. All right. All right. Till our next episode. Appreciate everyone spending some of your valuable time with us. It will be 1042. The Coptimizer podcast is powered by Performance Protocol. Performance Protocol brings professional executive coaching to police officers and administrators at all levels of the organization. Performance Protocol has the blueprint that will operationalize organizational optimization. It is purpose-built for today's public safety employees to help them accomplish goals and live better. What is it? one-on-one video-based coaching with officers and leaders who have been in your shoes and know firsthand what it means to live and work in public safety. The program will connect you with certified coaches who combine their years of success in the world of law enforcement with world-class training from the cobble of performance protocol coaches. Get the support, resources, motivation you need to live the life you want. Performance protocol coaches are relatable, knowledgeable and confidential. Most importantly, they get results. Why should the keys to unlocking our peak performance be reserved for just the boardroom or the playing field? Unleash your full potential today and get started with Performance Protocol. Remember, performance is the goal, protocol is the path. Log into www.performance-protocol and learn more about how to bring this program to your agency and community.